Greetings, NSA Nation, and welcome to your July, August 2013 edition of Voices of Experience. I'm Theo Andros, and I'll be your host. We kick off this month's edition of VOE with a guest from outside of the speaking business, but inside the world of arts and entertainment. You may not know his name, but guaranteed you know his work. He's the voice of such iconic characters as Miss Piggy, Cookie Monster, Fozzie Bear, Animal, Grover, and of course, Bert of Bert and Ernie. But wait, there's more. He was the head puppeteer and voice of Yoda. And as if that wasn't enough, he went on to direct some of the funniest must-see movies of all time. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, In and Out, Little Shop of Horrors, Death at a Funeral, and What About Bob, to name a few. In this interview, when describing working with specific actors, he often only mentions their first name. See if you can figure out who he's talking about. I'll help you with one. When he mentions Marlon, he's talking about Marlon Brando. The rest, you're on your own to identify. This interview has so many applications to the speaking business though they may not be obvious at first. It's another departure from our traditional programming, but one I am confident you will enjoy. Please join me now as I sit down with the great Frank Oz. Our listeners to this are speakers. Right. So we want to talk about things in a way that makes it relevant to speakers. And I've been thinking a lot about a movie as a keynote. A movie has a beginning, middle, and end. It has a storyline and structure. And if you could share with us your creative process as you prepare to shoot a film. Well, that's a very uh, simple question. Very, it's a large, broad answer. The process of how to create a film. I'll, I'll take a section of it. The first thing is when I make a decision to make it. That's the biggest decision of all is yes or no. How do you make that decision? If I read it for the first time and I can see how it will be, I can sense and for want of a better word, that dirty little word called vision <laughs> that we directors use and throw around. But one does have to have a strong vision. And so if I don't have that, then I don't do it. And once I read it and I get it and I sense what the movie is, but I don't have it exactly, I need the process to tell me, then I'll say yes. And I won't read it again. As soon as I read it once, I'll know, period. What is your pre-production process? Well, each movie is different, of course. I mean, you're, you know, I've done TV show and I've done a $100 million movie, and so every process is different. The larger you get, the smaller you get. The, the process in general is, you know, be prepared as much as you can so you can play on the floor. Be as prepared as possible the way I do it and know everything so when you're asked about something, you can either give the answer or you can say, I don't know. One can never bluff. One can never say, uh, it's green because they'll call you out. So it's either, you know the answer, or I don't know, let's work on it together. That process is, is necessary in order to get to the shooting process where you feel so comfortable, you could throw away everything you prepared in order to play, because you have a strong basis. In pre-production, you've read the script, you have a vision, you see it, you get it, you make a decision, you want to move forward. What is your process for selecting actors? Well, the selection process is all, you know, it's very complicated when it happens to, uh, to be larger movies. Larger movies, you're talking about a very big star in order to justify a huge budget. Uh, smaller movies, you don't have to justify the budget as much, so you don't need a huge star. So, therefore, when you have a very large budget, you have maybe 10 players, 10 stars who can justify that budget. So, you hope that one of those stars can fit into the character. And sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes I've walked away because the star would have made the movie, but it wouldn't be good for the character. Other times when it's a less expensive movie, there's many more people to choose from who are appropriate because they don't need to justify that larger budget. That's the main thing. But then, of course, the, the uh, other parts of uh, casting are the other 
players, the supporting players and the day players and everything, and I uh, go with my casting director. She filters out all the people. She'll, she and her assistant will go through a lot of auditions and then get the most appropriate for me, the people, and then I'll meet personally with them. Uh, many directors do video. I don't. I just meet personally with them and work with them, and then I, then I choose. What lessons can speakers draw from the casting process is there any relationship between a meeting planner selecting a speaker and a casting director selecting an actor? I, you know, it's hard. I don't know the speaking profession. Uh, so it's hard to give a, a parallel because I'll be speaking out of turn, I think. But what I can say is I've learned that getting the best person for the job is not the wisest thing. The important thing is to get the appropriate person for the job. What people believe is the, is the best person, the best cinematographer, the best choreographer, the best actor, that talent may be broad, and that talent may have a huge vocabulary, but maybe you don't need that particular size of a vocabulary, and that's a detriment to the character they're playing or the sh movie they're shooting. So what you're looking for is what fits the project, who's appropriate for the project to do what you would like the project to do. And sometimes the best person is not best for that. You mentioned that they bring scripts to you. Were you ever in a position in your career where you were bringing scripts and pitching them yourself? I'm not very good at that. I, I've tried it a couple of times because I felt I'm supposed to years ago. And I'm never successful. I'm not a good salesman. I don't know how to pitch. So I've been very blessed that I, I haven't screwed up the movies too bad. They keep on asking me. Today, the, today things are a little bit different. Today, one does have to pitch. Mm. And today, even if you're an A-list director, you have to audition, supposedly. And I, I think my ego is big enough not to want to do that, but also I don't think it's good for the process. Pitching, to me, is trying to convince somebody to hire me. You know, they know my work. If they want to hire me, they look at my work. I don't have to convince them. What I do do in every movie is I discuss with the producer what I, how I see the movie, and that's appropriate, and tell them what I like about the movie, what I don't, how I shoot it. That's appropriate. But pitching it is... The same to me is, would, would you let me into your club, please? And I, I don't want to be in the club. I just want to do the work. Frank, those who have pitched to you, what are the characteristics or the attributes of those who are effective at pitching you on an idea? I don't get pitched ideas. I tell you, I, I don't like being pitched to. Uh, my, when I have a script, and I, I read a lot of scripts, and somebody starts pitching, I say, no, 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 please stop. I want to discover it on the page. Don't pitch. Just let me discover it out of purity. Because then if you're pitching something, then you're expecting what the man pitched. And I want to approach it from my particular reaction. So I just say, please don't, don't do that. My agent will do it, and he knows better now. He'll say, look, it's a story about such and I said, no, hey, Greg, just, I want to read it from the page. Just send it to me. Are you still reading scripts? Oh, yeah, always, constantly. And there's projects around. There's all these projects around. But, but you know, I'll sound like every idiot director in Hollywood if I talk about my projects, and I'll sound self-aggrandizing, so I, I, get, I get sick of hearing that. Talk about story arc. Story arc. You know, it's fascinating. You know, I've read a lot of books on writing, and I've worked with a lot of writers and guiding them, and, and I know the Sid Field process, and I know all the processes from different uh, writing teachers. And what they teach you is the craft of writing. The good ones don't. The good ones teach you the fire, how you can probably get the fire, because I've seen many scripts that are crafted beautifully that don't have fire. What do you mean by fire? That make me want to turn the page. The spark? The, the spark that's exciting, that makes it different and original. And so, that is not taught? It's very hard to teach that. I don't know how to teach that. I would rather read a script that's 
crafted not very well, but has extraordinary excitement, fire, that talks to me. And then I can work with it, and I've done this many, many times. I work with a writer to craft it in such a way to enhance that fire. I, I saw a movie called, which I, with my son, which I hadn't seen for a long time, the, the only film Charles Lawton ever made with Robert Mitchum, Lillian Gish. It was uh, Night of the Hunter. And if you look at that, it's fascinating. We're all told about the story arc. We're all told about the story needs to be here and the, and the plot points are here and then act two has to here, be at this page. And, you know, it's all the same thing, we all, all the craft. But Night of the Hunter is an extraordinary movie and it's totally screwed up story-wise. I mean, if you look at that, the story is, after the first half, it becomes another movie. And, and yet there's, it's considered a, a, a seminal movie, certainly visually. There's something in writing that says make an economical, so economical that if you pull something out, you'll miss it. If you pull a scene out, you'll miss it in the script. So everything that's in there needs to be in there. And I bought that for years until I realized it's not true. If you look at The Unforgiven, it's Clint Eastwood's movie. Fabulous movie, incredible movie. There's a scene in there with the East Coast newspaper man, or the guy who's following this bad guy around. I think who was the British actor that played the villain in that? Yeah, I forgot who it was. And Gene Hackman kicks the hell out of him. Yes, and it's with Morgan Freeman. Right, right. And he. You uh, take that scene where he's kicked out of him, kicked right. the hell out of him. You take it out. It's not missed. But it's a scene I remember. If it's entertaining, then I think it's okay. I did a movie called Little Shop of Horrors, and there was a scene with Bill Murray and Steve Martin and Rick Moranis. You take that scene out of there, the movie works fine. And that scene is the very scene that some people remember, the dentist scene. The thing is, there are no rules. The only thing that really works is what works. This idea of, about the, the linear nature of story arc, you're saying that it, uh, if the story is strong enough, it doesn't really matter. Is Pulp Fiction one of those movies? It kind of Pulp Fiction is an incredible structure. Incredible structure. But it's, it's great. A, the structure of it, though, defies... It's not linear. No, it's not linear. Yeah, and also, I mean, there's other movies that are not linear, linear either. Soderbergh did a, a movie that was uh, shot linearly. Linear, is there such a thing? Linearly? <laughs> linear, <laughs> it was shot linearly. <laughs> Sequentially? In a linear fashion. Yes. And I think he re-edited it in a non-linear fashion. And so, you know, there's a lot of movies like that, and it's exciting if it's done the right way. Pulp Fiction was incredible. I don't know if it's about anything to do with linear or not. I really think it's unknowable. I think you, you, know, you do your best and you take your chance. <laughs> and you, if, if I could tell you exactly how it's done, everybody would be doing it. I don't do it all the time. Mm. So I don't know. I don't know exactly the answer as far as linear or nonlinear goes but, uh, because it's, uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. There's also in this process a lot of stuff involved. You may have an idea. But the actor's got to be able to do it. The, the DP's got to be able to shoot it. The production designer's got to be able to support it. You've got to have an, an editor to help you do it. You have to know how to edit yourself when you shoot it. There's a lot of things involved. Any one of those things you could stumble on. It's hard to know how it works. Frank, as a director, how do you get the performance you want out of your actors? I often don't get the performance I want. Because the performance I want may not be the best performance. Um, I'm confused. What does that mean? Well, I can say to an actor, whether I say it to him or not, I want the actor to, in this particular scene, be extremely angry. Okay, that's how I see the scene. The actor is extremely angry. That's how I see it. Okay. The actor does it and says, no, I'm, uh, he, he's not doing it angry. He does it angry, and then he also has vulnerability, and he has something else. And I said, geez, I never thought about that. So the way he does a scene 
is not the way I want it, but it's much better. So it's a collaboration. Then. Absolutely. A director is a misnomer. You don't, you don't direct. I mean, I don't put it that way. I don't say, you have to go here, you have to go there. What one does is you try and guide and support the talents of the person you're dealing with, be it actor or crew person, in order to get what you believe is best for the film, and yet by their contribution, it will always make it richer. What's an example of a time where you had a particular idea in your head of what you wanted the actor to do, they pushed back on you, and the end result was better than you had imagined? Oh, several times. I mean, I'll tell you, in, in the score with Bob De Niro, I remember in the beginning of the movie, I, I'd always seen it was Bob was robbing a, a safe in a house. He was driving it in the dark, and all of a sudden the door opened, and two people came in to make out and the door closed and I'd always seen that he froze immediately and Bob wouldn't do that he just immediately got down and I'm thinking of course he would <laughs> if he froze people would maybe see him for a second but I had in my mind for months he's just going to freeze solid and that's not his natural reaction so it was much better and much more organic the trouble is when you go in a preconceived notion and you don't let things live then then you can feel the tightness in the end product. You can feel the control. And you really don't want to control. What you want to do is you, you position and you support and you excite and you nourish and hope that most of it is the way you'd like to see it. And usually, a lot of it is better. You're still the boss. You're st I'm still the boss, I st but it doesn't help much to say I'm the boss and you have to do this. What you're looking for is catching lightning in a bottle. That was a dramatic situation with De Niro. Are there any comedic scenes that you recall where they were played differently than you imagined? There was a scene in In and Out, I remember. I really wanted to do a particular scene. It was, it was with Debbie Reynolds, Kevin Kline, Joan Cusack, Wilford Brimley. And there was a scene that I knew how it was going to be in my head. I knew it. And when I rehearse, the way I do it, it's not the right way to do it necessarily, is I let the actors first do what they want because one doesn't know. If one on the first take says, you go over here, you never get the actor's first instinct. Mm. So I always like to hear the, first act, the actor's first instinct. It's dangerous, though, because their instinct sometimes is not what you believe is the best thing for the scene. So in that particular case, their instincts were totally opposed to mine. <laughs> and I wanted, and I knew what I wanted. Every time I go in the movie, I know what I want in every scene. But it doesn't mean that I, I can't co collaborate. But in this one, by God, they were doing it in a whole wacky way that I just didn't believe was right at all. And I'm thinking, what the hell am I going to do? You know, I can't just say, no, I want you to over here, over there, because that's not going to work. So it took me about an hour to ask questions. You think this is the right way to do it? What about if you try this? Uh, you know, I know you think, if, if we move that table over here and you went on this side of it, do you think your character, you feel that that would be a move that's organic for you? You know, I'd ask these questions that eventually... It came the way I wanted to go. <laughs> but you take your chances, you know? The scene where Kevin Klein is listening to the, uh, the record, um, mm. yeah. take us through that scene, and, and how did you arrive at that? Well, again, I didn't arrive at it. Paul wrote it. It was the writer, and what I did was just do what was written and created the shots. I overshot the dance section. Describe that scene for our listeners. Decide what happens in well, that scene. Well, the scene was uh, that Kevin Klein, who was secretly gay, is trying to act macho, and he bought a... DVD or CD from a speaker. <laughs> How to act like a man. Yes. <laughs> a great speaker voice. And so he was listening to it, 
And one of the tests that the speaker did was he played disco music. And he says, you're not allowed to dance. A true man would not dance. And you see the impulse from Kevin to dance. And it's, it was impossible to hold that character down. And so Kevin just went for it. That one really doesn't apply to the, what I want. That one, I let it blossom. Mm. I tend to like to let things blossom. And then I kind of guide things around, you know. So you, you describe it as letting things blossom. Right. I think it's in the creative process, there's, this, there's an element of faith being unattached to having everything figured out in the front end, knowing that you're going to stumble across or it's going to be birthed through the process. Yeah, in, in the score with Bob and, and Marlon and Edward, we were shooting without an ending. I, I didn't like the ending, so as we were shooting along, we kept on trying to rewrite the ending, and we wrote almost every day and, and re- rewrote things. Again, I knew what I wanted in my head, but I couldn't get there, and so it took that painful process. Third Rotten Scoundrels, I, there was an ending that I didn't like we shot, I didn't like it was written, so we started shooting anyway without an ending. You know, Steve and I worked on the ending and finally got what we wanted. So you have to have faith. On the other hand, you have to finish the movie. And so there are times I'm unhappy. I mean, the end of the score, I'm unhappy with the last shot in the airport where Bob De Niro gets Angela Bassett and they walk hand in hand in the distance. I hate that shot. Uh, I don't like it. I would prefer to have Bob end in the boat by himself. But can never underestimate the audience's need for a couple to get together. So I did that shot. And so you have faith and you keep on trying new things. We tried this and tried this. And we were getting down to the point we had to make a decision because we were shooting and it was expensive. And I shot that. And it's not my favorite thing, but it ended the movie and wrapped it up. Which is a great lead into my next question. Have you been in situations where there's a friction between your budget and the creative process? Every single one. And so how do you handle that? It's a struggle. I, I think the, the best solution comes out of the struggle. Uh, if it's handed to you, the solutions aren't the best necessarily. If you have everything at hand and you have uh, exactly what you want, and you don't have to struggle to get the money you need to do this particular thing, then uh, somehow it kind of lays there. It's not as exciting. It's, it's as if it wasn't earned. For instance, in Indian in the Covered, it was like a $44 million. I'd cut $4 million out of the movie, so I cut a sequence out. It was very expensive. I had to struggle to make that budget work. I wasn't crazy about what I took out. I wish I'd left it in. It did affect other areas that I learned about and said, oh my God, I'm not satisfied with that. I gotta struggle to make that better. So I think in everything, the struggle with the budget and the creative, that creates the creative tension to me. I think if you only do it for the budget, you can have a dead fish. If you only do it for the creative, you could all get artsy-fartsy. I think that the, the tension comes from the art and commerce together against each other. Oftentimes, speakers say, if I just had more money, I could have a better brochure or a better video or a better... And you're saying that... Well, they probably could have a better one, but it may not be the best for them. It may be what they think they should be doing. It may be what people say they should be doing, but maybe it's not a brochure at all. Maybe if they didn't have enough money for a brochure of any kind, they think of something completely original because they were forced to. What is your sense of your legacy, of your body of work and the contribution you've made to the collective consciousness? I mean, you've, you've had these iconic characters. My legacy? Yes. But that's not my job to say. Let me restate the question then. Uh, it, it's self-aggrandizing well, to talk right, about my own fair, legacy. Fair enough, fair enough then. But do you have the same love affair with, with your characters and your work that your audience does? I have to. I have to have more. I have to love my characters more. And I love my characters. I have to. 
I, mean, I love the movies that I do. I have to. And even if I, even if I make a mistake, I have to love them in the beginning. But as far as a legacy, you know, I you know I'm a selfish performer and a selfish director. I don't think about the world when I'm doing it. I think about what excites me and how I can do my job best. All I want to do is good work. I I, I performed, and I don't hardly anymore, because I love performing. It's selfish. I wasn't thinking I'm going to teach children. I'm. I wasn't thinking I'm going to make people happy. I was thinking about myself and having. Hey, let's have a. Let's 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 work like a son of a bitch and have fun. I was selfish. As a director, I'm very selfish. I want to get everybody to help me make the movie that I believe is best. I'm not doing it so I can communicate to, to the to an audience. I just do it for myself. That it comes out in such a manner, like with these characters and because of Jim, that it also touches people and also has influence. That's gravy. But uh, it starts with you you doing work that you love. I have. That's the only thing I can do. All I can do is. Uh, do work that I love to do, and do good work. That's all I think about. How did you arrive with such clarity that if you just do the work you love and do it well, everything else takes care of itself? Well, Jim, uh, no question. I mean, I was, I was very lucky. I, I do uh, about a dozen characters, and I do a dozen movies I've done, and, but it's, and I've done a lot of other stuff, but it's Jim who was really, during the 35 years with him, uh, doing all the characters and everything, and the films with him, he was the one who got the work. You speakers have it more difficult. I was hired by Jim when I was 19 years old, part-time, to come and perform. And it took me four years to learn. Or no, 10 years to learn, I take back. Four years to do a voice because I was too frightened. But nevertheless, I'm going off on the tangent. What I'm, what, I'll get back to it, which is that it's not that I can say, I love my work and the work will come. I was fortunate because the planets lined up and Jim hired me. And Jim was the one who got the work. And Jim said, okay, we're doing this, we're doing that, we're doing this, we're doing that. So we flew to London, we flew to LA, and we did all these jobs. So I haven't really gotten jobs myself like you guys do. You have a harder road than I do. I've been very fortunate. It's not like if I say I love what I do, so therefore if things will happen, that would be disingenuous because I was lucky. I was very fortunate that I didn't have to look for the jobs. And whenever I have looked for the jobs, it hasn't, it hasn't happened. You don't enjoy that part of the process. I hate it. <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even do it. I don't pitch. I just hate it. I just don't, I don't do it. I admire other people I, who can do it. I, I, uh, I have a hard time doing that. I'm not a good salesman for myself. That's why I have a, a, an agent and uh, such. Why did Jim hire you? Well, when I was 17, he saw me do a, a show. When I was, and he was in Washington, D.C. And uh, when I was 19... I wanted to be a journalist, not a puppeteer by any means. Uh, he, he asked me to join him because Jane, his wife at that time, was having uh, another child and she had to stop performing. And there was a show called The Jimmy Dean Show and he needed somebody to help. So I was basically a, uh, an apprentice for about six, seven years. Uh, and he, so he needed somebody at that time because he was moving to New York. You mentioned earlier that it took you four years to do your first voice work? Yeah. And that was a fear that kept you from yeah. doing it sooner. How did you overcome that fear? Because Jim forced me to do it finally. Jim forced me to, uh, to do a voice, and I was scared out of my mind. And I remember in the dressing room looking in the mirror and said, okay, if you can't be good, be loud, which is an old showbiz saying. I think people look at me and think, oh, my, you know, it just happened. And I was too scared for four years, from 19 years old to about 23, 24. Jim did the voices, I did the performance manipulation because 
I had very low self-esteem. I didn't think anything of myself, you know. And people will look at me or anybody else who's successful and say, "Oh God, that must have been his confidence and everything." Absolutely not. I had low self-esteem. I was self-deprecatory. I, I was a people pleaser. It took me a long time to get out of all that, to be the raging uh, egomaniac I am now. <laughs> uh, but it, 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 it doesn't simply come that you're full-blown successful. You go through, again, like I said to you, struggles. I think the struggle is really the value. The, the value is not the success. The value is the struggle. What, was, what were the first voices you did? The first voice I did was an old Hal Hurt show with Jerry Nelson doing it. It was a two-headed monster. He was one head and I was the other. And that's when uh, that was... Uh, these other characters, they developed over time. What was your your process of developing these characters? Oh, that's, you know, it's, it's different to everyone. I mean, again, I, I was very fortunate. I mean, I, I did shows like Sesame Street where at that time it was like vaudeville where you did it every single day and you and you worked on your character every single day. Now you can't do that. I mean, you're on a show which could be canceled in three days, you know? During that Sesame Street period, it was a long, long period, I was able to try many characters and some went up the wayside and some didn't and other, other performers had the opportunity to do their characters also. It's not that way anymore on Sesame Street, but it used to be. And Saturday Night Live the first year, uh, we had several shows, you know, we had a lot of fun doing characters. And we did The Muppet Show, and I had a lot of fun creating characters. So I've had the opportunity to have a process, and there's not much opportunity for process these days in the large arena. In the small arena, yes, but not the large arena, because that's too, based on, too much based on economics. But how I did my characters differs with everyone. Yeah. Some, some I knew immediately and instantly, and some took like a year to do, and I couldn't get them. Of the ones that didn't make it, are there any that you wish had made, that you missed, that you really thought were going to land? And no, they deserve to be gone. <laughs> they, they, deserve. <laughs> they deserve to be in the, gra- in the vast wasteland, yes. Uh, yes, absolutely. They deserve to be buried and gone. <laughs> we all have those characters that we try and, we, and, we, and it doesn't work and we go back. Sure, as speakers too, we have a story or a sure. routine that just doesn't work, we just let them go. And I heard once that from error to error we find truth. And it sounds like it's part of your creative process. You've been willing to take risks. I, you know, I'm. Have I been? I've been able to take risks under a very safe umbrella, mm. and that umbrella was Jim. Now, when I did my own movies in the marketplace, yeah, then I took risks. Then I, I remember when I did Little Shop of Horrors. It was my third film, and it's the first one that was away from Jim, because I did uh, Dark Crystal with Jim, it was really Jim's movie, and then he asked me to, to, uh, to, then I did Muppets Take Manhattan, but those were all under the umbrella of Jim, so I could take risks under that safer umbrella. But then I was asked by Geffen to do Little Shop of Horrors, and that's another story, it's a long struggle there, but one thing I said to uh, an assistant editor, I said, you know, I said, I've never done this before, I mean, this has been on Off-Broadway for four years. It's been award-winning. I haven't been out of the safety net of the Muppets before. And here I am. You know, I'm doing this big thing. It's a huge mother. And I mean, I, I, I'm not sure. And she said, Frank, you just have to put your ass on the line like everybody else. And I never forgot that. And that's what you got to do. The work you did with George Lucas, did his style of direction influence you as a director at all? No, because George, what George does, first of all, is 
unique to George. And those big movies have so much optical work and now digital work. And I'm I'm not crazy about doing all that much digital work. I, I've done a lot of optical and digital, and uh, I like it when it enhances the story and everything. Like, and George does it in such a way that it enhances the story all the time. But he really has to work on it, really. And I'd like to work with the actors more. Did he interact with you much as, in giving you direction as you created that character? Not as I created it, but as I performed it. What you know, the other answer to the idea of why haven't I? If I learned from George, it's because I was too busy performing. I wasn't, I wasn't looking at George. <laughs> it was a hell of a tough thing to do. So I was too involved in my own work, and I didn't really look at what he did. I always, you know, I had periphery, but I, but I was, I was, I had a job to do, and I and I had to focus intently on it. Well, what about his interaction with you as an actor? Did you learn anything from that? George knew very well what he wanted. Uh, sometimes I disagree with him, but he's the director, and so I gave. My job was to give him choices. Then he made a decision of those choices. He knew just what he wanted to do. And he was a tremendous support. And, um, you know, he's like a second family there, like Henson is, or Muppets is. But I, I don't think I learned from him working with me as an actor because we all have to do it our own way. I don't know how much I've learned from other directors. Directors don't have the opportunity, like speakers do, to see each other's work that much or to talk about each other's work that much because we're all off in different places. I don't know how much influence, I'm sure I was influenced by many, many directors, but not consciously. I think Orson Welles probably is the one I'm most influenced by because he's so, such a powerful director. You said you gave him choices. Mm -hmm. On the takes, on each take. What were some of the ideas you came up with that weren't in the script? Uh, you know, the way Yoda was performed, it was extremely difficult. It was four people and we all had to be in unison. So it wasn't the kind of thing you could be spontaneous with all the time. You had to work and work and work in order to make it look spontaneous. And so when you came up with something, it was ahead of time. Or if it was on the set, then I'd have to have time to work with my compatriots to make it, the rhythms happen. So you were, the, you were the puppeteer, but you were also the voice of your right. that correct? Right, So how much creative input did you have on his manner of speaking? Oh, that, completely. That was all? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, the, the, way it was, the way he speaks, uh, the syntax, was written in by George and uh, Larry Kasdan in Empire Strikes Back. But it wasn't all the time, it was only partly. And I asked George, you know, I really like to make this more uh, his character because I believe there's a reason why. And I, and I remember when I didn't know George hardly at all and I was at uh, Elstree Studios and I was preparing to rehearse, uh, which I rehearsed about two weeks before I shot Empire. <laughs> You know, I, I, I went up to George, who I hardly knew. I said, uh, George, do you have any thoughts? Do you want me to, is there anything with the order you want me to do? And he said, Frank, just make it wonderful. <laughs> That's all he said. <laughs> and then on the floor is when he got more specific. Of all the work you've done, I think the movie that, that it, uh, is most fitting for the speaking business, and it's probably no surprise to you when I say this, would be, what about Bob? Why? Oh, because the, 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 the writer, the, the, the book, the baby steps, the baby steps. I mean, it's, it's right out of our, I yeah, mean, it sure is. And, uh, how did you and actually, it's a pretty good, uh, instinct for, for, for anybody that take baby steps. It's we a all, great concept. We all should take baby steps and not big, huge leaps. What was it like making that movie? It was extremely difficult. Why? Uh, there was a lot of tension on that particular set. There were different Which camps. actually served the story, doesn't it? Yes, it, it did. All right. Yeah, my, in my perverse, warped, sick, director way, I was happy with it because it, as, as tense as it was, it, it helped the relationship. Was that by design or was that organic? Organic. I, Billy and Richard didn't get along. And so 
after about a few weeks of getting along. And so that, I think, came out in a relationship. Each of them did a brilliant job. And actually, as brilliant as Billy was, people don't understand how brilliant Richard was. Richard really did, was incredible. He was really, and he wasn't spoken of as in, 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 in that light as much. But it was a difficult thing to shoot. And, and of course, and I've had very difficult shoots. I've had some wonderful shoots. But the idea is to keep your eye on the prize. You gotta keep that strong vision because everything is trying to pull that vision apart. Thank you, Frank. Our next guest is Laura Berman Fortgang, who is one of the early pioneers in the world of professional coaching, and today remains one of the leaders in that field. In this brief segment, she shares a bit about being one of the first authors featured on Oprah, as well as a few tips from her latest book, What Now, on how you can keep your speaking fresh and engaging by bringing more of you into your work. You were talking about your Oprah experience. You were on the show for an hour. Yes, I had 30 minutes of 42 minutes of airtime. I know, unheard of, right? I mean, certainly a dream come true. I only had four days notice to go on live. So I was like really worked up. I, you know, five in the morning was up meditating and holding it together. But it's a significant day in my life, not just because of, you know, how desirable that is, but I made a decision. I was like, I can go and be intimidated and scared or I can look at it as we are equals and we have a job to do to reach 22 million people today. And that's what I chose. And it, it was truly one of those days I'll never forget. Was, what do you remember most about it? We talked about something in the commercial break and then she came back and said, so tell everyone what we were talking about. And I couldn't remember for the life of me and it's live television. And You're like, but, no, no, you tell them. <laughs> I did, I did exactly that. I said, no, why don't you tell them? And she gave me a hard time about that all the way through the show and then she forgot something so then we had this joke about forgetting things or she's high-fiving me but the thing that I truly remember was after the first segment she turned her back away from me and wasn't looking at me or talking to me and I thought uh-oh you know what did I do and I, one of those moments again where I said you have a choice you can be afraid or you can ask so I tapped her on the shoulder I said did I step on your toes too much too little and she's like oh no honey you're fine and from that moment on it was like we'd known each other forever our audience for this is speakers so let's look at your work experience your life experience everything and and let's make a connection of relevancy back to the speaking community are you speaking now i've been speaking professionally for 13 years okay and i built my coaching practice by speaking for free and wherever i could and whatever i could do so i came to the speaking world just naturally as someone who had been a performer their whole life i was an actor musical theater performer And so when I started coaching, when no one else had heard of coaching, the best way I could think of to let people know about it in the pre-internet days was to go out and speak. So anywhere I could find a group, I would speak about things. And I started building a corporate speaking career by speaking at free lunch and learns. And, you know, people bring their brown paper bag and have lunch. And one day I was talking about stress management, but from a coaching point of view, not from a health point of view. And the right manager saw it and said, oh, I need this for my team. And that was my first check from a corporation that I just leveraged and leveraged and leveraged. And now, you know, I'm a keynoter, sometimes do breakout stuff as well. And speaking is my passion. And it just so happens I built my business by speaking. But now I prefer to speak over anything else. <laughs> so do you still coach? I do. I do. I've been writing books, too, since 1998. And that sent me more on the speaking circuit and writing circuit. And I definitely had a moment there where I could stop working with clients But I felt like, how could I talk about coaching only from the past? So I've always kept five to ten clients forever. And what is Now What? Now What is my third book. Now What is called Now What 90 Days to a New Life Direction. But 
I've spent the longest living with that book because I created a program where I train people to use the Now What program with their clients if they have people in career transition. So now it's all about career transition, finding your next step, uh, very much an inside-out approach. I don't look at resumes. I want to know what your life story is. And in your life story, we'll find the clues to what's next for your life. Okay, so for a speaker who's looking to possibly reinvent themselves, you know, a lot of speakers who've been in the business for five years, 10 years, 20 years, the business has changed dramatically, as have the speakers. So what lessons from your Now What program can speakers apply to their career? Everyone brings their unique thumbprint to speaking. You know, some people come from a different family background or they do improv or they are more corporately oriented. And so if they were using my Now What program, they would go in there and look at, you know, who am I? Who am I? What is uniquely my, I call it a life blueprint. And how do I mix that into my speaking? And funny that you should mention that because I have been a speaker for 13 years, very want to be taken seriously. And I have five books and I want, you know, and I get paid really well. But recently I realized I'm not using everything that I have. I was an actor first. And sure, as a speaker, performing skills are great. But I recently decided that I needed to act more, like to create theatrical experiences in my talks. So I actually created an alter ego character named Life Coach Lurleen. And Life Coach Lurleen versus me lives in a trailer down south and has a very witty sensibility that is very different than you might expect from highfalutin coaches who get paid a lot of money. And I just got my first corporate gig as Life Coach Lurleen in my own reinvention of like, I'm not having fun anymore. It's 20 years. Uh, I always want to be taken so seriously. And I'm like, you know what? I don't want, I can't take myself seriously anymore. So I now have this other way to do my speaking that is very fun. So for a speaker who, who may have plateaued or may be in somewhat of a career rut or maybe, maybe they're doing fantastic financially but they're just bored with what they're doing, what advice would you have for them? I'd say go back to your, not your resume, go back to your life story and look for things that intrigued you as a kid, maybe another trajectory you had in your life, and see how you couldn't mix that together with what you're doing now and find an original way that lights you up again. Whether it be an interest you have, a hobby you had, a career that you had, but bring it in and mix it up. I recently learned of a speaker who is a wine expert, but she's made a speaking career out of wine. You know, so there's something in you that is uniquely you that can be brought out and add to your speaking. Thank you, Laura. This next segment features NSA member Rob Shore. Rob is the creator of WholesalerMasterminds.com and is a content creating machine. His segment, Five Shore Ways, has become a fan favorite and is always packed with specific actionable content. Let's see what he has to share with us this month. So here's a question. How often do you examine your website statistics? I want to present you five sure ways to use your website statistics to help you grow your coaching practice, your speaking business, whatever niche of our community you happen to be in. So first of all, for our statistics, we use something called StatCounter, S-T-A-T counter, StatCounter. Now I know there's Google Analytics and I know that Google Analytics is wildly robust, but StatCounter for us provides a much easier and digestible variety of statistics that we can look at and use every single day. We pay a whopping $5 a month that allows us to get a little more rich analysis of our data. Here are the five sure ways that you can use these statistics to your advantage. Number one, 
popular pages. We added a new banner box because we learned that the home page was not the most popular page being accessed on our site. Imagine that. You put together your site and you automatically assume that the most popular place that people are going to come might be your home page. At least we did, but not so. So we added a new banner box that allows us to swap out ads on the top of our most popular page. Number one, popular pages. Number two, exit link activity. Where exactly are people leaving your site and going to when they leave? Our landing page that they were headed to really needed some work, we found out, because once they got to that page, they weren't buying. They weren't converting. The exit link uh, activity told us where they were going, but it wasn't converting. We knew that we needed to do some work in order to convert the language on that page so it would sell the product in a more effective way. Number three, browsers. You may not think it's important what browsers your readers are actually using to access your site, but it is. 20% of our traffic is still coming from Internet Explorer 8. Because we work in a corporate landscape, it's not surprising that so many of our clients are using dated browsers provided by their companies. Well, as you may know from your webmaster if you do it yourself, Internet Explorer 8 is very different than Internet Explorer 9 or 10. And that means you need to make sure that your compatibility is such that it's coming through, your website is coming through appropriately on all versions of Internet Explorer. We also found out that 35% of our traffic comes from iPad and iPhone. 35%. Well, that means, number one, we need to do more promotion of our app, because we do have an app for iPad and iPhone. And number two, we need to make sure that our site is properly optimized so that when people do come in through the portal of iPad and iPhone, that they have the right kind of experience. So number three is browsers. Number four, downloads and download activity. Our big lesson after looking at the download history on our site was that we had old content that it was actually being hit quite a bit that we need to make sure was updated because we didn't want people to be downloading out-of-date content with out-of-date messaging. So downloads and download activity was an important finding for us relative to our content. And number five, Take a look at your keyword analysis. How are people ultimately finding you via their web searches? And is there information that you can use from those keyword analysis pieces to help you build your content? Well, in our case, we know that we have a lot of future posts that we're going to be writing that's based upon the most popular search criteria that people are coming into the site with. Five sure ways to use web statistics to beef up your website, your blog. Number one, take a look at the most popular pages. Number two, examine your ex exit link activity. Number three, understand clearly what browsers are being used to access your website. Number four, check out your downloads and download activity. And number five, have a look at your keywords that people are searching upon to find you, to find your business, to find your site, to find your content. It's been my pleasure visiting with you on Five Sure Ways. Thank you, Rob. We now go to Joanne Dennison for an update on this summer's NSA convention. Joanne? Here is my question for you. Are you going to the NSA National Convention this year? And maybe a point where you're still thinking, yeah, I don't know. Is it worth my time, my money, messing up the family vacation plans? So here's some of the questions that are going to be answered in the concurrent sessions. Online content. What is it? Why should I use it? Should I use it? And isn't it 
awfully expensive. Colleges. Okay, I hear nobody gets paid to speak at colleges, and I hear sometimes they do. Would that be a good fit for me? I look around my own industry every year, and I see how many people are getting certified and recertified. And they need these continuing education hours, and I know I could do it, but I have no idea how to become an official provider. And last week, I had a meeting with a potential client, and I just know if I had had one more piece of information, one hidden gem, that I could have closed that deal. I have to learn how I can find out more about my potential clients, legally. And I always wondered what it would be like to go back and talk to 20,000 of my past clients. Well, you know, if I'd had 20,000 past clients. And ask them, why did you hire me? Why would you hire me again? Or why wouldn't you hire me again? And I've also been thinking about taking a partner on in the business, but not a family member because that just wouldn't work for me. And I'm trying to figure out the process of how I get a partner and not a nightmare. And what is Pinterest? I keep hearing about women pinning up pictures of shoes, and I don't even know what a pin is. And is this going to be one more thing where everyone goes, oh, you have to do it. And it takes up all this time and earns me no more money. But if I could learn about it from someone who is making money doing it, whole different ballgame. And I've been thinking about hiring a coach for my platform skills. And I would love to be a fly on the wall with one of the NSA great speakers and coaches as they coach someone, not me, someone else. So I could watch the whole process and learn from it and learn if it would work for me. I'd also love to sit down and have a cup of coffee with some of the people I so respect and admire in NSA, both for the great people they are and the great businesses that they've built. And I would ask them questions like, hey, what have you done right? Or what have you done wrong? And what are you still struggling with? And I really wanted to go to Laugh Lab this year, but you know, it sold out really quickly, but they're going to do a best of Laugh Lab at convention. And since I'm not a CSP or a CPAE, I couldn't go to Summit, but they're going to have a best of the Summit. And I know even if I get a little bit of that high level information, it's going to help me earn my CSP. And they also have this thing called the Adult Learning Playground, and one part of it's a human library, and you don't pick a book, you pick a brain. So off to talk to my family, and I will see you in Philly. Thank you, Joanne. Be sure to go to nsaspeaker.org and register for convention today. Our next guest is another slight departure from our typical programming. She is relatively new to the speaking business, but a longtime veteran, so to speak, CNN journalist and documentary filmmaker. She's the winner of a 2012 Edward R. Murrow Award for Short Documentary Filmmaking and is a pioneering war reporter who has followed our troops into some of the most dangerous combat situations in the world. Please join me now as I sit down with Alex Quaid. In what I've done as a journalist, I've been very old school. I go and embed with the troops, very specifically the Special Operations Forces, people like the Green Berets, Rangers, Navy SEALs, Air Force Special Operations, Combat Controllers, PJs. I embed, I live with them, I go out on their missions, cover them, and tell their stories. All right, so let's make this really easy for you today. <laughs> All right, we're going to shift the focus back to what you do, because what I'm intrigued about is is the story aspect of how you find your stories, how you craft your stories. Tell us your, your, uh, your background. What is it that you do? I am a freelance war reporter. I've done television specials, one-hour documentaries for CNN. What happens with these things is you get a chance to really get into a subject. You get context. 
you get to experience what the boots on the ground, the soldiers, the grunts are going through. And how I have managed to do this and get access to the folks that nobody gets access to, these special operators, the, which is very much a journalistic first and a historic first, is purely gumshoe, rapping on the door every day, walking the halls, sleeping outside of doors, sleeping on tarmacs, being persistent. I basically am so persistent, I just piss the hell out of them and, and uh, eventually- They finally surrender. Eventually they finally <laughs> surrender or, or- So meeting planners really don't stand a chance against you is what you're saying. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh... so. If you're able to apply that same level of tenacity <laughs> to getting yourself in front of meeting planners and people to book speakers, you will do very well in this business. I have a a wonderful love hate relationship with uh, I'll call the, the they are called military PAOs, public affairs officers, okay. and those could be compared to the gatekeepers probably in any corporation. The I don't know if you would call them PIOs, public information officers, right. or the the gatekeeper, the folks that don't want to let you in. And this could be applied to I suppose any speaker trying to gain entry into the corporate world to, to try to get speaking engagements. Uh, it's been the persistence of calling every week, every month. I had one experience where for a year, I was calling at least once a month, if not twice a month, to a special operations command and trying to get access to something very high speed that people don't know about and some individuals that people also don't know about. And the public information officer kept saying, yeah, 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 hemming and hawing, and oh, call back and, and try next time, or this and that, or we'll think about it, your request is in, gave, basically giving me the brush off. Finally, this uh, lieutenant colonel did me a service. She said, point blank, Alex, just stop calling us. Call us next year, because right now our budget is secured by Congress. We don't need you. We don't need the media. We don't need to leverage you. And now while that might sound incredibly insulting and also a, much of a, an eye-opener as far as, as far as politics and budgets and things like that, I thought, you know what? Thank you. You've just been honest and straight up with me, and let's not waste each other's time. And I called back a year later, and, uh, you know, I, I managed to get, to get a story and get in. And it's just been persistent, and people appreciate persistent. They will admire that, even if it ticks them off. Talk about story. What are you looking for when you're putting a story together? I have always looked for the human details, the little moments that anyone can relate to. Unless you are in the military, unless you have somebody who is serving overseas, a, a veteran, a husband, a wife, a father, a grandfather, who, who has any idea what these folks are going through? And I've always looked for those little human moments that the guy back home, the gal back home, what they might be able to relate to. It's these universal truths. It's the I need to take care of, of my friend. I need to watch out about today to, to survive. And while that might sound very big in broad terms, it's about the things that actually matter. We all go through our lives with all these kind of things that day in, day out, yeah, they seem so important. But in the grand scheme of things, what are you going to remember? You're on your deathbed. Is it going to matter all the little petty stuff and the office politics? No, it's going. you're going to remember these, these little human moments and details. I follow people who are doing amazing things in extremely difficult situations. And it brings out the best in people. It brings out the worst in people. And I've always gone into my stories, gone into my coverage with a complete blank slate. 
I don't have a preconceived notion of, of what I'm looking for. It's not, oh, I need this soundbite. I'm going to make this person cry or something like that. I'm not going to. You You're know. not Barbara Walters. Oh, she is a trailblazer <laughs> as far as women in journalism go. Oh, of course go. she is. But isn't don't, she famous for making people. No, I'm not knocking her. She's famous for making people cry, though, isn't I she? I think she's also famous <coughs> for the, if you were a tree, what tree yes, would you be comment. Yes. I don't ask people questions like that, but. I also don't ask gotcha questions. I spend enough time with people to gain their trust, to try to understand what they're going through and put myself in their place and also know that an interview, it's a scary situation, just like what you and I are doing. You look terrified, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now I know what I put these poor people through. I think an important distinction, Alex, is you're you're not looking to create a story. You're looking to find a story. Yes. It's almost like a fishing trip. Okay. You're not fishing for something specifically. You're not out there fishing necessarily for a perch or a bass or a rockfish. I let history unfold around me, and I'm a witness and a voice for the people who don't have a voice. Okay. And try to make sure that people back home understand a little bit of what the men and women in uniform are going through and sacrificing so that what they do is not forgotten. And these Vietnam veterans, they come to me just out of the blue because they want to talk. They want to be heard. They want to know that what they did mattered, that they had value. I think this translates to anybody about listening and making somebody feel that they mattered, that they are valued. So what advice would you have for speakers to help them become better listeners? It's focusing on the person that you're listening to. They are giving you a gift by giving you their trust. And it's about being responsible, sharing their story in a way that is not manipulating their feelings, their secrets. It's also about knowing what to share and what not to share. I think it's very important to take care of this trust and to not be out to get a soundbite, to get something, to get some some soundbite that's a sexy headline or controversial. It's not that I'm a cheerleader for the military or the people that I've covered. It's about being fair and about realizing there's a human in that uniform. So part of your success, you then seeing the humanity in these people and telling their stories. Talk a little bit about the craft of storytelling and what speakers can learn from your experience. I've heard people say, oh, it's about the characters, find a character. And and I had a news executive tell me, Alex, we make little films here, little movies, and you, the reporter, are supposed to be the star of this movie, and that's what how it's supposed to be. I highly disagreed. The story should be about the people in the stories and about pr- bringing the audience along for the ride, giving them a chance to see and feel and taste and touch, to really understand and feel like they are there. Thank you, Alex. Our next guest is CPAE Speaker Hall of Fame member Victoria LeBaum to share with us her insights about the craft of speaking, as well as her sudden and somewhat unplanned reinvention of herself and her business. Let's talk about the business of speaking, Victoria. What's going on with you? You know, I shifted my business this last year, sort of by accident, sort of by design. It's been really interesting to see what's happened. I had before been doing probably 
70% keynotes and 30% coaching, or maybe 80% keynotes and 20% coaching. And I really expanded the coaching portion of my business. It was not by design? It was someone accidental? Or what, what precipitated this? I'd gotten married in July of 2011, and I really put my heart and soul into this wedding planning. I never thought I was going to be one of these brides buying magazines, and my friends were howling because here I was, like, reading Brides Magazine. I couldn't believe it was me. You know, what happened? I put all of my creative energy into this wedding. And then all of a sudden I looked at my fall calendar and I said, oh no, <laughs> I'm totally sinking here. And so I just started putting my energy quickly towards coaching and it blew up. I mean, in the best of ways, like in terms of a stratospheric rise. Which do you enjoy more? I'd say probably keynoting. I mean, there's nothing quite like being on that stage and taking the audience on a ride. What's your model for coaching? Are you sitting in your, in your house reviewing tapes? Are you on the phone? It's all of that. I do some coaching by Skype. I have a whole series of clients who are over three, six, and nine month contracts. And I work with them once a week or once every other week by Skype. And so are they performing on the other side or are you just talking face to face? How does, when you say on Skype, what does that mean? It's everything from them getting up in front of their camera and saying, okay, okay. All right. Can you see me? Wait, okay. Wait, let me tilt the screen a little more. Okay. I know I look really fat today, but anyway, okay, here we go. It's everything from that to sitting down with a leadership team of a large company and strategizing for their whole company meeting. And what are you coaching them on? Everything from strategy to stage. I do structure, content, and delivery. What's the difference between a presentation and a performance? That's a great question. I think it depends on how you define performance because a lot of people misunderstand performance. I get a lot of people who say, oh, I don't want to be performancey, you know, because the illusion they have is that performance means inauthentic. And when I use the word performance, I mean that it's thought of with respect to the audience in terms of showmanship. You have to have qualities of an experience that you're bringing the audience through. And a presentation, and this is just an old school approach, in my mind, connotes more of an academic type of drier, a delivery mechanism. So aren't there speakers, though, for whom that is the appropriate path? That if they're more of a subject matter expert, wouldn't it be fair to say they're presenting more than they are performing? The methodology of delivery has to match the content. Well, I guess that's a little more complicated thing because you can blow that and do the opposite. You can take something that's normally done in a very dry format and do it in some creative, wild thing. I mean, it was just at Steve Spangler's session. Here he is taking science, which would normally be considered pretty dry, and making it into a wild YouTube sensation. He's a showman, though. I mean, so he, right. he's very much performance-driven right. more than presentation-driven. Right. When, you, when you're coaching corporate executives, what are you helping them to do? I was actually just thinking about a tagline. I have to research it and see if someone has it, but it's basically you, just better. Oh, no, that's, that was my, my tagline. I, <laughs> I've been using that for years. It's <laughs> trademarked. <laughs> yeah. uh, it, you just a, better. You just better. Isn't <gasps> yeah, that good? Yeah, it's fantastic. I just, I just emailed my assistant this morning. I said, look this up and see if someone else has it. But that's essentially it, because my belief is you shouldn't be able to see the coaching. If the coaching is evident, you're in trouble. So my clients, I want them to look just like themselves, except just better. I don't want them to look like me or anyone else. They just have to be themselves. It has to be transparent and invisible. The coaching has to be invisible. Because the opposite of that, there's oftentimes you can see someone who has been coached. Yeah, and that's not great. And my whole thing is to take off the elements and the, the thought processes and the, the bad coaching that gets in your way so that you can truly come out. Uh, there's, a, there's a line from a famous 
actor, which is a young actor, came up to the famous actor and said, tell me, tell me your best advice about acting. And the famous actor said, just don't get caught doing it. You don't want to be caught acting. I had a great acting teacher who said that at the end of a play, if there's a scene with a plumber on stage, he said, what you want the audience members to say is not, oh man, the guy who played the plumber's really good. What you want the audience to say is, How'd you get a plumber to be on stage? (laughs) Who let the plumber in? (laughs) Right? It has to be that authentic. For most of our listeners and most of the speakers that we see here at NSA, if there was one thing they could focus on improving, what would it be? Oh, I don't know. Depends on what their issue is. To, To jump off of our last piece here on authenticity, who you are off the platform and the rhythm that you speak in, the tone that you speak in, should translate pretty uh, accurately onto the platform. You might slow down a little more, you might articulate a little more, but it should be that just expanded a tiny bit. It should not be completely different. So it's really being aware of how you are off the platform, your rhythm and your style, and then translating that on. It should not be a different persona. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> it shouldn't? <laughs> well, I, I think... No, you're great at that, Theo. What are you well, playing false humility here? It's not false humility. Right? I actually... No, no, I... Let's debate this a little bit. I think you got to play larger on a big stage. Who you are on and off the stage in terms of your values and your message and such need to be congruent. But I think that when you step on that platform, in order to reach the back of the room, you have to be more than who you are one-on-one, but maybe not. Uh, No, absolutely. It has to be expanded. Expanded. Just not altered. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what's the difference? Hmm. Boy, I think you caught me there. I'm not sure if I can articulate it. Uh, I believe in you. You believe in me. You faith. I have a red bull in me. For yes. Me. Thank you. Theo gave me half a red bull. <laughs> I am flying. <laughs> her, her first one, I might add. I know. It's kicking in. Yes. Sugar and Kathy, what else is in here? I don't know. <laughs> hope. There's hope in there. Hope. All right. So let's take a crack at this. I think it's really a matter of understanding, as I said, the rhythm. So if my rhythm is like this and I get excited, someone might, a coach might say, you're too fast. And it's too fast if the audience can't follow. But to, to metronome it out and slow it down in a certain rhythm because that's the way you're supposed to speak, I think is going to translate as inauthentic to an audience. They can smell a phony speaker, a convention room away. You know it when you come in, even if you've never met me and you're new to me as an audience member, you can tell something's not organic and true. It's like a fake tan. Yes. You're like, something's not, you know? <laughs> what are you pointing at me for? <laughs> Have you read, did you read Blink? I did. All right, so... Let's talk about this from the standpoint of, you, know, you look at the studies in Blink, how the, an audience makes a decision instantly whether or not to like you or not, and then they spend the rest of the time finding evidence to support that initial opinion they have of you. So from your perspective, how important is it what you do when you step on, the first thing you do when you step on the stage? I didn't like my setup on that very much. That's okay, I got you. The, how important is it how you ask the question there? <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's not very important at all. No, two, two answers. Number one, it, it is important what you do in the beginning. But I have to say, I've had a few audience members over the years come up and say, you know, I wasn't so sure about when you you came on. But I think that was so interesting because I used to come on dancing and it would freak people out. And I kind of did it intentionally because I didn't want people looking at their Blackberries. So, you know, even in small venues, you know, an insurance audience, they'd say, okay, next up, Victoria. And I would put on this music and I'd come out and do this like swoopy dance. And I love swoopy dance. A swoopy dance. (laughs) And then I would stop and about, I would start doing my material and about seven minutes and I said probably a number of you in this room were a little freaked out when I came out dancing you were thinking wow I should have left early and it would get a huge laugh and I sort of did it intentionally so I did something that made them a little uncomfortable made them feel maybe uh, certain questions in their mind about my ability and my content 
and my authority on their topic, and then I would show them I knew their topic, and then I'd refer back to that. But I talked about the opening, and I would kind of debrief it. Do you still do that? You still no. Have, no. Why'd you stop doing it? Oh, probably fear. Of what? I just, I just, you know, I think for me, I come from the arts, and so I moved into the business community, and many of our speakers come from the business community, and they're trying to add art. And I think you're always, whichever you come from, you're always wondering if you have credibility on the other side. So part of, part of my intention in not dancing into the opening was I want to be taken seriously. So I you know, started coming out in a suit you know, and, and trying to be really intelligent in the start. And people, some of the crew members, so I did a lot of events for this one company. And one guy's like, I'm missing your opening. Like, that's what makes you different. I'm like, right. So I am still playing with that balance of how much art and how much business. And I actually believe it's, for me personally, it's a strength. Is how far can I push each of those. We have these colors within us and we tend to hide certain parts of our color. So we think I'm just blue or I'm green or I'm red. I think you got to pull out your orange and your purple and your pink. So here's my thought on this, Victoria, is that on one hand, the way you described it to me is it sounds like you were almost creating work for yourself that you may have lost your audience initially and you had to work to get them back. That was a, So when you first said I thought, well, of course you stopped dancing because you put yourself at a disadvantage. But now you've just made a case that's convinced me that you should dance every time. Well, yes, and I think part of it has to do with the venue. So what I've gotten a lot better at is saying, where am I in the lineup? What's going to work for these people at this time? If it's a big venue and I'm the opening speaker and they want that ta-da, and I'm hired literally for my energy. I mean, sometimes meeting planners will say, we love your energy, we'd love to have you as the opener. So it's very, actually, it's very different. What you just said now a moment ago about looking at the venue. So you, you took, you stopped dancing because you were scared. Let's be honest. You said that, or you said you were scared. That it would, you I wouldn't was be scared I wouldn't be taken seriously. Okay. Yeah. And it's okay. Well, I think given the right venue and I, 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 my brand is shifting so fast, you know, so that it's, it's gone from one style to, well, I think it's shifting. Maybe that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, from one style to another so that from what to what? Well, the content, I think I was perceived early on as crazy, busy, nuts. People actually thought that I was a life balance expert, which is... Oh, you're not a life balance expert? No. That's not true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're crazy, busy, nuts. I mean, it was a signature piece. It is a signature piece. It just, it, it came out because I, I moved into the speaking business before I knew what uh, topic I was supposed to be. So I just took my one-woman show and I came up with a great title, thanks to a wonderful woman named Kathleen Mazena, who's with the uh, keynote speaker. She's like, that'd be a great title. I said, Okay. And so that was my title. And then people just pegged me as a life balance expert, which is hysterical because I really didn't know that much about life balance. And I mean, who was I? I was a single, hard-driving woman to be talking about life balance. And then I moved into the prism effect, which is really about taking your unique gifts and talents and bringing them into your communications. And that's still very much a part of my brand. I have another brand called The Through Line and bringing in stage and screen strategies to transform your business. So it's basically my overarching brand is around the business and the arts and how they intersect. How do you take the art in you and bring it into your business? So the awareness of the dance, so the dance piece. The, he is into this dance thing. Well, because I think it's really important that the thought process that goes into whether or not you keep material or whether or not you keep, in this case, an element of your performance, an right. element of your presentation, whether it stays or not, the thought that goes into making that decision, I think is very important. Because when speakers, when any of us remove that out of fear, I think that's not as powerful as, as when you move it intentionally. So initially you took it out because you were afraid of how you're being perceived, but the fear of how you're being perceived means that you're being less of who you are. And so much of your message as your coaching is about being authentically you, a better you, you better, 
if you are this dancer, there's maybe there should be a place for it. But if you take it out because it's not, it doesn't fit the theme or the placement of you on the program, that's different. Right. And if you're not doing it because you're afraid. It's still in my piece. It's just in a different place, too. So you start dancing later in your program now? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the clothes. You've seen my funny film, The Park Avenue yes. Show. Yes. This is a very dynamic business, and, and people's businesses seem to be constantly evolving. And you're, you are in the process of, of not necessarily reinventing yourself, but evolving your brand yeah. and evolving what you're doing. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, part of the evolution comes from just getting tired of old material. Part of it comes from saying something new one day and someone really latching onto it, and then you say it again and someone gets it, and it keeps getting traction, and you think, well, there's something here. And it's jazzing me up. I always think you have to follow where you're jazzed up. People might say, oh, you should go in that direction. I can't tell you how many people said I could make X amount more money if I did ran a training company and trained people to do what I do. But I, I don't want to manage people. I don't want to run that. But something excites me, and I go in that direction. And then it develops, and I throw it into a show, and I throw it into the next show, and it gets traction. So that's what's really been happening. It's like the coaching business I talked about at the beginning of this interview. I hadn't really planned to expand it, but I, I gave some energy in that direction, literally, because I looked at my calendar and I thought, I have extra time. And it just grew exponentially. Very organically. Though. Very organically. How did the coaching business grow? How did you do that? By doing a really good job. So by, was it then by referrals? You yeah. Did one, you had one great client, they introduced you to another. I mean, how did you find your coaching clients? Definitely referral. So I had coached a whole bunch of people last year and I just checked in with them. I said, how did that presentation go? And what's your calendar looking like? Are you excited for the year ahead and your events? And I coach mostly executives, not speakers. People would say, oh, I'm so glad you called. I have something coming up. Can you just help me on this one bit? So much of my business has grown because I've gone a little beyond what I probably should do. And I've gotten coaching from people in NSA, business coaching from NSA members who said, you know, don't give so much. Well, wait a second, wait a second. You, what do you mean by going beyond, beyond what you should do? What does that mean? Well, let's just say I didn't have the money yet. Like an old client said, I have something coming up. Can we? I, I want to hire you for a three-month contract, but can you just help me with this thing for tomorrow or for next week? And I'd say, sure. And I would spend an hour and a half of my time, and then like the contract didn't happen for a few more months. And I panicked, and I thought, wow, I, I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't. And yet then it came through in a big way, and they were so grateful that I'd spent that time sure. earlier. I think the message is you live by the rules you set. So, Victoria, it's very interesting. So you talk, even at your level, all the success that you've had as long as you've been doing this and the, and the recognition and acknowledgement that you've received, you still struggle or have doubt about what to do next or are you doing the right thing? Talk a little bit about that. Well, I think that worry, that I and I have that, is what got me to where I am. I think that striving, that concern, that commitment to doing a good job, that worry when you get off the platform, you think, oh, oh, you know what I should have done? That, that's that, what makes you great. That doesn't go away. It, it shouldn't go away. And, you know, I quote this a lot from one of my mentors, the great my Marcel Marceau, and he said, the amateur is always pleased with herself, but the professional is toujours inquiet, is always worried, because she knows her life depends on what she does. When you're seeking feedback, what's a good question to ask someone about the performance you just did? Well, you want to be very careful about who you ask. Yes. And what you ask for. Okay. If you just say, what'd you think? You're not going to get honest feedback. But if you ask a specific question, like you might say to someone you respect, it maybe it's someone in the industry who had hired you, or maybe it's a fellow speaker who came to watch you. You might just say, what did you think about X? Or when I did this, did that work? In the asking of feedback, you've separated the judgment of you as a person from the judgment of the performance or the material. I think where speakers get into trouble is when they take the feedback or response as a personal 
criticism or critique rather than a professional or specific to their material. Give our listeners some advice on how you separate the two. Well, that's a good question. When I was studying acting, I had a fellow actress who made a great comment about the field of, of performing. And she said, you know, if you're a painter, someone will say, I don't like his work. But when you're an actor, they say, I don't like him. And that is where the identity gets merged and you really do get confused. I think it's hard to separate because as a presenter, it is our self. It's our voice. It's our beliefs. It's our self up there. So it really is hard to separate. But I think you have to find your self-esteem elsewhere. I've learned, though, it's sometimes really not about you. And I learned this from casting because I was on the other side for a while and I was working with directors. And someone would come in. We were working on a PBS special. And there was a role. And someone came in who was blonde-haired and sort of a cheery personality. And then we had another guy come in who was sort of darker and gloomier. And after he left, the director, who was far more seasoned than I, he was a well, relatively famous director, turned to me and he goes, so who do you think, Victoria? And I hedged my bets because I didn't want to, you know, I was, he said, no, tell me, do you want sunny or do you want dark? What do you think is better for the role? So we chose sunny, but it wasn't the dark sunny meaning in terms of a bright personality. It wasn't the dark guy was wrong as a human being. He was just not right for the part. Are there some similarities between selecting a, an actor for a role and selecting a speaker? Is there a connection? I mean, are they similar? Well, I'll tell you what I think is similar is that often they don't entirely know what they're looking for until they see it. That's really powerful. They don't entirely know what they're looking for. Until, until they, they see it and they go, we want that. And I think that's really powerful if you're cre creating a brand that doesn't really exist because then it's like Joe Calloway's category of one. If you're a category of one, no one's ever seen your category. They don't know it until they see it. But I think to be a rock star speaker, you want to be creating something that no one else is creating. Thank you, Victoria. For those of you who want to get her free PDF, 20 tips to turn a boring presentation into a slam dunk performance, go to victorialabalm.com. That's www.victorialabalm.com. You'll be able to get it there. He may be a lame duck president, but there is nothing lame about the always handsome and often funny El Presidente himself, Ron Culberson, with his president's message. Ron? Thanks, Theo. And may I just say that you've done a phenomenal job this year. I can't believe how wise I was to choose you for this role. You are the consummate professional and did an amazing job pulling out great content from your guests. Thank you for the outstanding work you did, the generous contribution of hours of time putting VOE together, and your service to NSA. Well, listeners, it's that time of the year when I come out of the closet. Uh, let me explain. Unbeknownst to most of you, I recorded my VOE segments this year from my bedroom closet. Now, I don't want you to think that my office is in my closet. In fact, I have a lovely corner office. It's still in my home, but a nice office nonetheless. But I recorded VOE in my closet because I don't have a recording studio. I didn't want to go to one each time I recorded VOE, and I discovered that all my clothes created a very nice soundproof environment. I think it's quite brilliant. But I did feel odd standing in my presidential closet with my slacks and jacket staring at me. But it suited me. <laughs> and therein lies the metaphor for my year, I think. In many ways, I didn't feel very presidential, as if I was doing my work in a closet, sort of. Let me explain. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not a particularly visionary person. I don't know everything about the speaking industry and all that NSA needs to do to thrive in the future. I know a lot, but there are people that have a much better handle on this than I do. And I'm not the most successful speaker either. I have a good business that survived for 16 years, but I can't call it extraordinary. And I know I'm not the best speaker from the platform. I'm solid, and I work on getting better, but there are many who are better than me. Not most of you, but 
some. <laughs> so how the heck did I get elected president of NSA? That's a great question. Here's what I know. We are an organization of people, and everywhere I traveled, from the 34 chapters within NSA to the nine international conventions, it's all about the people. As I said in my inaugural address, it's the people that make NSA great. And it was the people who did the work this year. The people who I encountered in the chapters, the people who serve you as committee chairs and volunteers, and the people who work as staff at NSA headquarters, they are the ones that made it possible for me to be in this role. I was surrounded by great people who made me look, well, darn good. And I do look darn good. But what was truly extraordinary for me was that all of these people repeatedly stepped up to serve. I was humbled by their commitment, the commitment of our members, our staff, and speakers all over the world. But again, that's what makes NSA great. And if we continue to work together and own the responsibility for our association, we will thrive. So as I sit here in the closet one last time, Looking back over the year, I must admit that I felt like I have ridden the coattails of others all year long. I got to sit back and enjoy the privilege of being president while I watched many of you serve this organization with generosity, with grace, and with professionalism. And now I get to come out of the closet and join you as a past president and forever a committed member of NSA. And I hope that I get to serve future presidents as honorably as you have served with me. Thank you for the experience. And that's all I know. And I hope it and this year were somehow helpful to you. Thank you, Ron. Well, that wraps up another edition of VOE. Thank you to all of our guests for their incredible insights and generosity. Thank you to Kelly McGrath for the music this year. You can learn more about her and her music by visiting kellymcgrathmusic.com. Thank you to our recording engineer, Rocky Heyer, for his continued service to NSA and for saving me on more than one occasion. Thanks to you, the listener, for, well, listening. VOE has always been my favorite NSA member benefit, and it has been the thrill of a lifetime to be your host this year. Thank you for all of your emails, phone calls, and letters sharing with me what you've enjoyed and occasionally what you didn't. Best of luck to you as you continue your journey as a professional speaker. This is one of the greatest businesses in the world, made up of some of the greatest people in the world. Hope to see you at the convention this summer. Be sure to say hello. Peace and love, NSA Nation. Peace and love. And it won't be long before our ship comes in. It won't be long before our ship comes in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.